welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Everybody, welcome back to the Pastured Pig Podcast. I am excited to be back here and releasing another episode. Got another great interview lined up for you guys this evening. Before we jump into that, I did want to do some updates. And first and foremost, a big celebration, a big shout out. Uh, we have reached 20 supporters, which is our first benchmark on Patreon. And I really appreciate all of those 20 supporters who are um, parting with some hard-earned money. I understand it's uh, it's these days it's it's tough to uh, stretch a dollar, but I really appreciate that. That's our first benchmark. So we have kicked off the process of building the website. Really made some great progress on that already, and that website is going to incorporate a lot of features focused only on pastured pig processing, pastured pig raising, pastured pig, everything pastured pig, basically, from a national perspective. We want to cover everything, West Coast, East Coast, everything in between. So it's going to be your resource or other people's resources. There'll actually be an element that draws in potential customers for you, for your genetics, for your wieners, for your uh, holes and halves, for your cuts. Um, there's, there's a lot of elements we're anxious to add there as we get going. So, uh, look for that soon. We'll keep you all updated. So along the same lines, what I'd like to do, you know, with a website, websites all about imagery, right? So I can obviously go out and take pictures of my pigs in pasture all day long, but that's very one dimensional. We want to show pastured pig images across the country, all the different ways that you guys have been raising pigs on pasture, all the different breeds, all your different setups. So here is a call out to you all listening. If you would like to send me any pictures or video clips that you think would look great on a website, send those to me and we will vet those, of course, make sure it's going to work for where we need it. And we'll place that on the website and we'll definitely give you citation reference and we'll give you a link. And if you're familiar with SEO, the benefits of getting that backlink, there is value to that. Give you a link to your website, to your social media, whatever you have available there. And uh, it'll be just a great way to get some exposure for uh, a great pick that you've taken, but then also give us an opportunity to have a great eclectic representation of pastured pig setups across the country. Now, in in keeping with all the uh, copywriting and all those type of things, uh, please, please make sure that this is indeed your picture, that you didn't grab one off Google Images and send it to me. Uh, We will be confirming that with Google, but I'll also need to have you just sign a standard uh, guest bloggers agreement, which is just boilerplate language, basically saying you didn't plagiarize anything, images, text, whatever. Uh, So don't let that scare you, but that's what we marketing people have to do. We have to dot our I's and cross our T's. (laughs) So so, uh, by all means, please consider sending that. Uh, You can send a high-res image to Troy at redtoolhouse.com. Or if you have any questions, obviously just email me at Troy at RedToolHouse.com. So along that same line, if you have been a guest on our podcast already, uh, either reach out to me or expect to get an email from me here soon. 
uh, we're going to um, we want to feature you on the website as well. So those of you that have come on and and uh, you know, shared your experiences with us through the podcast that we could share with the listeners, then uh, look for some information. We want to kind of update where you are, products you offer, those type of things. So we want to do a little shout out for each of you that have been on the podcast. So uh, look for that or go ahead and be proactive and send me your information as well. So uh, along the same lines of Patreon, uh, since we've been talking about that, uh, we now have four detailed episodes diving deep into how to market your farm products, specifically your pastured pork products. Uh, We start from uh, the very beginning, from pricing all the way to how to start marketing campaigns when you have very little money, guerrilla marketing efforts, those type of things. So there's four episodes now uh, behind the Patreon uh, firewall there, paywall. So if you're a Patreon member, you can use that. There's an RSS feed that all you do is drop that into your mobile device and it'll download it just like it downloads the podcast. So it's it's that automatic. If you have any questions or you have any issues with that, by all means, email me and I can give you step-by-step instructions on how to set that up. Um, our next benchmark with Patreon is 40. So if we can get to 40, then uh, there's a really cool feature that we want to turn on on the uh, website. It, it, it has a monthly cost associated with it. So that's why we're setting that to that next benchmark. Uh, but it will be a nationwide directory that is indexable, has just an incredible amount of features. So whether you're selling holes and halves just in your region or you're selling genetics nationwide, uh, then it'll have this regional appeal that we can represent, uh, place your farm information on there, place your product information, your genetics, your products that have to deal with pastured pigs, whatever you've got, then we'll be able to share that. And that at that point, too, we'll also be, be spending some monthly advertising dollars to get the website promoted, to try to get uh, SEO build up there, and to get regularly... Um, regular traffic of legitimate uh, visitors that will utilize uh, these products and services that you guys offer. So so look for that on down the road as well. Hopefully when we get to that 40 threshold, looks like that may take us a year plus. Uh, maybe not. Maybe it moves quicker. But that's the uh, the goal when we hit 40. All right, so let's get in and talk about our guest. Our guest is uh, Ryan, and I I slaughtered his last name, and Ryan, I'm going to apologize in advance, even though you gave it to me phonetically, I still have slaughtered it. But it's Ryan Collage, and it doesn't spell anything like it sounds. (laughs) But uh, Ryan, I really enjoyed talking with Ryan. He's with Epic Nature out in Wisconsin. And we had some really good discussion about his red wattles, you know, how he's raising breed stock, uh, kind of took a little bit of a detour into his red wattle association, some other things he's got going on. He's, um, he's a wealth of information, and I like the way he presents that. So we're probably going to have Ryan back on future episodes to, to dive deep into some of these specific details that we touch upon in the podcast episode. So without any further ramblings, I'm going to Jump on over to our interview, and I'll catch you guys on the flip side of the interview as we wrap up with some other details. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pastured Pig Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Troy McClung, and I have another great interview set up for us tonight. Really looking forward to talking to Ryan. And I already apologized to Ryan in advance because I was going to butcher his last name. Appalachians and and European names, they don't mix very well. But I want to welcome to the podcast... 
Ryan Collage, and Ryan's with Epic Nature in Wisconsin. Welcome to the show, uh, Ryan. Thanks, Trey. All right, so um, I hope I didn't put your name too badly there, but man, I, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and uh, talk about what you've got going on up there in Wisconsin. Yeah, not a problem. Um, we're just we're just doing a rural rural type hobby farm up here in Wisconsin. Um, we've we've had pigs up here pretty much since we moved out here about twenty years ago. But we've we've kind of shifted to having purebred red wattles. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Well, let's do this. If, if you don't mind, give me whereabouts in Wisconsin. I, I don't know much about Wisconsin. What? Um, where are you close to? Are you close to the Canadian border? Are you further south? Uh, Wisconsin doesn't actually touch the Canadian border. Interesting <laughs> enough. <laughs> well, shows you what I know. That's right. Because of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan blocks it, doesn't it? Yeah, well, we have Lake Superior. Yeah, so that keeps the Canadians out, I guess. Oh man, I am. I feel like an idiot now. I'm going to have to brush up on my geography. Woo. So Amherst, Wisconsin, it's pretty much centrally located. We're in a growing zone 4A for all you you temperature people out there, which mm-hmm. means it's it's 20 below on on a few nights, and sometimes it gets a little bit colder than that. Yeah. Wow. So the Wind chills in in central Wisconsin do approach that forty five to fifty five below zero, so it does. Our location in Wisconsin does kind of make it an issue with winter farrowing, and I'm sure all the other farmers out there know that weather is a farmer's best friend. And we just we breed year round because we found that it can be forty degrees in January and twenty below in March. So there's no there's no use trying to guess on the weather. Just got to keep them bred. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just, just embrace the suck, I guess. <laughs> so, um, so in that area of Wisconsin, is that would, would you consider that like a plains area? Is that uh, rolling hills? Is it mountainous? Uh, the the majority of Wisconsin is a a rolling type of hill with fertile soil. The the lower two thirds of the state are actually some of the best cropland. I mean, it's, it's really similar to Iowa and Illinois. I don't think the bushel yields are quite the same. You know, I, I think that they are approaching 200 bushels acre on some of that Southern Wisconsin farmland. So it's pretty good soil where we are is the break between what is called the terminal moraine. The glacier stopped there and left a bunch of piles of dirt that are a couple hundred feet tall. So we live in a terminal moraine. So the soil around us is known as glacial till. So you can have clay and a vein of clay in one spot and then all sand in another where you can't get a you can't get a pricker bush to grow. <laughs> and it's it's literally just a pile of sand. Wow. Well, yeah, that, that's gotta make things interesting. So, so we, try, we try oh, to use we try to use the variety of soils to our advantage. You know what I mean? If we got if we got a, a spot that's flat, you know, we, where we have a lot of our pigs, it's a 20 acre field, which is really flat. But once you come off of that, there's a, a sandy hill on another part of the property. I've been hauling that sand up to put in the, the pastures for the pigs wherever I'm moving my, my farrowing huts to, because we move our farrowing huts at least every year, if not every, every farrowing. Hmm. Oh, wow. 
Wow, excellent. So a little bit about the, real quick about the history of the farm. In your pre-screening photo, you, you had mentioned that this is a fourth generation in your wife's side of the family. So uh, real quick, give, give us a little bit of a history there as, as to, A, the, the layout of the farm, how you guys came about it, and then you know, what the four generations, what was it primarily used for? Well, the, originally this was, I guess, timberland sold to another farm farm fam, pioneer family in the late 1800s. So the original owners of this property after the sawmill was another family until my wife's great-grandparents bought it back in, I don't know if it's the late 1800s or the early 1900s or exactly what, I, I've never seen the deed, but it was a long time ago that they bought the property. Hmm. So it's it's been used as kind of a hobby farm because of the the terrain where there's a creek running through it. There's a lot of wetlands. It's a 110-acre total farm, which my wife and her brother share ownership of it at this point. But at least half of it is in either some sort of conservancy zoning or rural limited natural area, which is a, a buffer zoning that our county has. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So so how does that work into to managing your efforts? Do you, do you find that as, as limiting or do you, do you see that as a, as a bonus because some of these things, uh, these areas are kind of returning back to, to more of an original or, or a uh, renewed state? How do, you, how do you guys approach that? Well, living in a, a natural area is a, a blessing. You, know, you, you can't, you can't have the type of life that we have without, you know, there's, there's wildlife everywhere. We have um, different types of herons in the creek, you know, fishing, we've got otters, we've got mink, we've got, we got all kinds of wildlife in our area. And to maintain that, you have to allow the government to put restrictions on you and send you letters. <laughs> you know, so it's a pain. Living this close to water is a real pain, but yeah. it's a blessing. So, you know, as a farmer, it's very, very difficult to do any sort of commercial or industrial scale farming this close. And that's why we've kind of decided on pasture raised pigs and keeping all the pigs out because we cannot store or stack manure. We are yeah. too close to a watershed to even store or stack manure on our property. Interesting. So, so. Uh, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to unpack that for a little bit, if you don't mind. So uh, were you saying as as you and your wife were, were coming to the property and looking about, hey, we, we want to utilize this as the farmland that it was, we want to do some sort of agriculture with it, were you thinking more of an industrial scale, but because of this situation and what you had around you and recognizing the conservation that's going on, that's maybe what led you into this uh, pasture to pigs, or were, were, there, were there other influences there? Well, I hope you don't mind me taking a tangent sure. on that. Yeah, go ahead. When we came to this property, it was in 2002 when we first were married. We, were, we got married in 2001, and we were given a piece of this property that we have our house on right now as a wedding present. So we've been out here for a long time, 
but not until Deanne's grandmother passed in 2011 did the property actually get divided up proper between the the living children. And since my mother's, since my wife's mother was an only child, there was no distribution of land at that generation. Hmm. It went straight past my mother-in-law, who just didn't have any use for it. She's in her 70s and passed it straight on to the next generation, which is an excellent way for a farm to continue being successful. Yeah, yeah. Certain people should not be hanging on to their farmland and holding it over their children's heads for something. Give them the farmland so that they can actually do something with it while they're young. Yeah, yeah, well said. So we, we have had we have had an an excellent opportunity working with my wife's parents and brother so that we can use this property to really its its full potential. When we got here, the tillable acreage was being tilled by a local farmer that rents for row crop. He just does corn and beans rotation. Mm -hmm. So the, the property was under corn and beans rotation for th over 30 years before we got here. Commercially, I didn't see row crop as viable. Mm. So we had to convert the, the 20 acres of tillable land we had into something that we could use. So it's a, it, it was a very difficult journey. A lot of, you know, we failed at a lot of different things trying to convert this property into something that doesn't require, for one, industrial or commercial input to keep it going. Because there's no way that a small farm can compete with, you know, com commodities. I can't produce corn or soy or hay or anything like that. Just the machinery alone on a little farm like this would eat up all the, the profits. Right, right. So, Pasture raising pigs. Uh, I don't know. Everyone else is doing pasture raising uh, steers. There's a lot of dairy in Wisconsin, so I'm competing with a lot of guys that have free, literally free bulls, free bull calves. Mm. So we weren't going to pasture raise steers. We're going to do pigs. And the, it just seemed to fit together that pigs were going to kind of nurture the land and turn it back wild. Yeah, yeah. Wow, man, I, I love the evolution of that journey and, and appreciate your perspective on that. And and kudos to you all for, for taking a look at that and, and going through that step-by-step. Step. Now, it sounds like there may have been some hard lessons learned in that process with what you mentioned there, but it's really neat to, to evaluate and come to that realization that here's what we need to do and this is what's going to separate us from competition but also make us viable even though we're a small acreage farm. Very cool. I, you know, about small acreage farms, and I see a lot of this in central Wisconsin, that these guys lose their farms. They take on debt to fuel this, this appetite for commodity. The more corn you can grow, all right? So I've got to reduce my hours. I got to buy a bigger tractor. I got to buy a bigger plow everything so you're constantly putting all of your money back into allowing yourself to just get bigger and the inputs are incredible for an acre of corn mm. 
I mean, it, it would be, it'd be a couple hundred dollars at least per acre on inputs. So on a 20 acre section, it's $4,000 every year. And that if you're, if you're doing it right, it's going to cost you more than that. And that's, that's just to get going every spring that you have to come up with this cash roll to put, put your crops in. Whereas with pasture, you can start with four or five pigs, four or five sows, get them going, get some litters, sell the litters, buy more feed, add a sow, and just slowly grow your herd by selling off what you, what you can to grow it. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Slow growth model there in many ways. So have you discovered with, uh, I assume, first of all, how many, how many years do you have pigs on that 20 acres and where have you seen that 20 acres improve to? Well, we started with four pigs, four crossbred sows. They were a Yorkshire, Hampshire cross, and we bought a registered Duroc boar. And they were averaging probably weaning nine out on pasture on the litters, and they were really fast growing. But the sow's fertility expired after three three generations, and we had problems with stuck piglets. Hmm. So after, right, immediately after we had our first litter, I started looking for something better. And we found red wattles. And I say found them, it's just research. You got to do your research. If you're going to, if you're going to do anything successfully, you've got to know what everyone else is out there doing, what everyone else has done wrong. Pasture raising animals, you can't have a commercial breed. You need something that has been out on pasture for generations. It's, it's one of the, the hardest lessons I learned about, you know, just Durability, longevity, uh, the heavy pigs, the heavy, heavy frame pigs on ice, you know, out on rough terrain, they're not built for that. You need an animal that has just a little bit more of a petite stance to it so that it can be more agile. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, I got to say, I, I, there's I, so much, there's so much that I want to cover in this, <laughs> in this interview. It's like, huh? How do you tell pretty much how you got your whole operation running in a, in a short little. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah become a challenge. Definitely. Man, I appreciate uh, what you're sharing with us there. And, and I can definitely agree. And in, in my experience started with very similar Hampshire Duroc mixes finished well, but a uh, very similar situation. The genetics kind of ran out and they were just really hard on, on our pasture. It's, it's way more mountainous. It was, it was being, uh, been a real challenge to keep that heavier breed on on the hillside so we've switched to more of a heritage breed as well so well and that's i'm glad that you say that that in a mountainous area you definitely need something more fleet of foot or they're going to be rolling down the hills all the time (laughs) that's right yes there's a couple times i saw hampshires hit the hill (laughs) they don't stop till they get to the bottom because they're kind of barrel chested (laughs) All right, so um, so I have to ask uh, your experience. So at at this point, when you all decide to to come to the farm to do this to embrace uh, pigs, is is this a career move? Is this something that generationally you've had experience, or you started out with uh, you grew up on a farm? 
where were you in the experience there? And then, and why, what led you to the farm life if it wasn't? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people in Wisconsin grow up with rural exposure. Somebody owns a farm. Somebody's family owns a farm. Everybody owns 40 acres for hunting, even if it's not farmed. All the marshlands, all the woodlands, that's all owned by these families that grew up here. They're outdoorsmen. They want their own place to go and shoot a turkey or a deer or whatever. So you have a lot of rural culture in Wisconsin. And I think it permeates in Wisconsin more than it permeates in almost any other state by the way that I'm treated when I go out of state. When I'm pulled over by police officers, they, they, they're like, you're from Wisconsin. <laughs> like, like it's something they were told that if you meet one of those guys, they don't follow any rules. <laughs> very good. It's, it's very hillbilly-esque, yeah. Wisconsin. It is very, very remote. And, and people, people have their own opinions, real own strong opinions from place to place. But in general, it's a community. And we all, if you break down on the road, you can knock on the first house you get to and that guy will provide you with a jack and he'll come out and help you take your tire off. I mean, it, you don't have to be afraid of who you're talking to or, or where, where you're stepping or even where you're trespassing. No one's going to shoot you for trespassing. Hmm. Good stuff. So, so you grew, I up, grew up, yeah, grew up in that climate, it sounds like. I grew up on a 120-acre stretch of farmland that was purchased by my grandfather. It was not connected to the main part where he milked the cows and had all the steers and equipment and stuff like that. It was four miles down the road. And eventually that property was owned by my uncle, but my father's house was on it. And I grew up in that house, which was built new in 1980. It was an earth home, kind of crazy for the time, you know, that here you got a hillbilly getting cement and covering it with dirt (laughs) so he can live live on the side of a hill. Right. (laughs) You know, and, you know, the neighbors, they always had a still, you know, there there was always moonshine available in the neighborhood. You know, so it had a very very rural, you know, turn of the century feel, feel growing up out there, remote. All the farms had outhouses. I mean, everyone had running water, but there was still all the outhouses that all the guys used, you know. Yeah. So it's it was a very, you know, the, the place of, of where I grew up is, I see it as almost, you know, pioneer that the the generations, only a couple generations ago, those men were still breaking that land and turning it into cropland. Yeah. It was all all rocks and trees. My grandfather owned a bulldozer just for pushing rocks out of the out of the fields. <laughs> so, and you come to Wisconsin, it's a glacial deposit, meaning the the glacier run over a bunch of mountains and then it it left the left its deposits right here. Right. So you go out in the field and it becomes really expensive if you go too deep because you start hitting the side of these huge rocks the size of your car. Hmm. Wow. Well, that's, so 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That met you you just the way you describe Wisconsin sounds a lot like West Virginia. Sounds like we could be kindred states there. <laughs> that's what we I love. Think so. I think so. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, Ryan, um, let's if we could let's shift gears a little bit here. So, uh, moving on to the farm that was uh, uh, monocrop to some degree, and of course has this conservation element. It sounds like there there may have not been a lot of infrastructure when you guys came there. Was there a house? Did you put a house on it? And then when it came to raising your pigs, did you have to put much infrastructure in, or are you are you staying totally mobile with your pasture operation in that sense? Totally mobile is, you know, having those T25 head deck screws, plywood, and a bunch of two by sixes, <laughs> you know, and, and wherever the, wherever the sow goes, you follow her with, with three sheets of plywood and a couple two by fours. <laughs> right. when, when, she, when she has her baby, you put the shelter up because that's where she chose. And if you put that thing up a second before she farrows, she ain't going in there. <laughs> so that's. That's my farrowing infrastructure. In, in the winter, it's different. They they settle down pretty good in the winter. But the the infrastructure is non-existent because it was rented rented land for so many years. The house that grandma, that grandpa, Deanne's grandfather grew up in. So the house that his, her grand great grandparents bought sits down right by the creek. It's a cute little white house and. That was sold after grandma's passing. My in-laws own another house, which is like a thousand square feet or 1200 square feet up on the hill, which is exactly 140 away from our house because that's the minimum distance you need to have between you and your (laughs) in-laws. And we built a, essentially a barn kit, the local, can I say Menards? I mean, can I, oh, yeah, can I say yeah. it? Absolutely. Yeah. So went down to Menards. We bought a, a barn kit, all the metal, all the the trusses and everything. It was like $24,000. Hmm. And I believe it was a 30 by 36. And it's got a full barn loft. So almost almost the entire upstairs is, is usable, but it's got that, I don't know if it's a gambrel or you know, whatever the hip, you know, it's got that. Yeah, that extra barn that's shape. Right. Yeah. Cut yeah, to, yeah. Barn shape yeah, I believe that's. Yeah, yeah. Gam- gambrel is the proper term, I believe. Yep. So we, we maximized our, you know, our space on that. We built the barn kit. We ended up with 1,600 square feet for our house. And you know, we had had to put a well in, all that other stuff, and, and build a garage. So to get set up out here, we'd. We had to go to the bank and borrow a little bit of money, but we inherited land. Yeah. So that gives us a leg up on everyone else that's trying to do do something like this. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're trying to duplicate what I was doing or what we did out here, you'd have to build a much smaller building, you know, the smallest house that you can build where, you know, wherever your zoning lets you. Yeah. Yeah. For if if someone's going to remote do an off the grid, move up to Wisconsin, buy 10 acres, it could be done and be sustainable. You're not going to make any money at it, but you won't lose any money. Yeah, very good. Fencing fencing's a big deal. Uh, biggest thing we learned about fencing is hot wires work until they don't. 
And if you want to keep pigs, you need to build a, a real fence. So we buy a woven wire. You buy these 330-foot rolls of metal woven wire. You can buy them 48 inches tall. I've been cutting those in half and making them 24s. Because the 48, the tall roll isn't any more expensive than the 32-inch roll. Hmm. So why would I buy a 32 when I can buy a 48, cut in half, and have two rolls of wire? Interesting. Yeah. So I doubled all my wire, which helps me fence in quite a bit more. And we started with probably two acres, and then we had five acres because we were slowly adding replacement gilts as we could afford to. Always selling all of our babies for breeding stock and whichever ones didn't make breeding quality, selling them for feeders. We didn't have the luxury to have. There were no extra piglets for us to raise to eat because we're trying to move the business along. So it's about, I need cash flow. I have a litter of babies. What do I do? Well, I sell them all because I need the cash. And that was how we got into raising for breeding stock and for feeders because it's like, well, this is the market we've developed. We had people in the area. They'd buy two, come back for four. All of a sudden they want eight. You know, we got a lot of guys around here that they come get 10 piglets every spring and they were guys just growing two or three for themselves. Yeah. But now they've got a little bit better heritage quality pork. Their friends and relatives are like, hey, that's that's better than what anyone else is growing. And I'm not saying that red wattles are hands above it, hands and feet above another breed, but they definitely have a more fat distributed structure than any of your, your commercial hogs. It's a matter of breeding. Yeah. The commercial hogs are bred for production. They muscle up very quickly and the fat just can't get in there because it's so much muscle. Any heritage breed will do exactly what I'm doing up here. You don't, it doesn't need to be red wattles. It could be mulefoots. It could be the uh, Sabwa Island, if I'm saying that correct. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people around here, they've grown the, I've seen the, the Gloucesters. I've seen the, the Mangalitsas. It's, it has to do with market. And I believe that the red wattle hog grows at an acceptable rate that I can sell it to someone that's used to, yielding pigs high yielding pigs they might be mad at me when they go to butcher and it's light you know right right at the end of the first season that they buy them from me they might be like these damn things don't grow but give them six months and they're going to be they're going to be calling you in the spring saying hey can i get a couple more than pigs right yeah yeah usually like you say the proof is at the, the butchering point that's what we ran into when we switched over to large black Tamworth cross then uh, didn't finish as heavy, but the customer feedback was like, oh my goodness, that pork chop was way better than your the pigs that you had last year, which would have been our Hampshire Durrock cross. And uh, so we see that, that and actually in our situation where we're, we're raising for finishing, it was a little bit easier on people's wallets to say, okay, you're not raising a, a finishing weight of or hanging weight of you know, 250 pounds to 290 pounds is a little bit less than that, and they can afford it better, so in better quality. So I'd like to argue with you about that, 
Okay. I think we, I think we've got our first disagreement. All right, let's hear it. So we were not we were two years into raising red wattles and we had yet to butcher. <laughs> People had asked us about how's the meat. I said, Well, I had I had a, a pork chop from the guy I bought these from <laughs> two two years ago. <laughs> yeah. Where do you buy pasture raised red wattle pork? I mean, it's not like I could just go and buy some and be like, I want to see what this tastes like. Sure, sure. I had to go and find breeding stock to, to have my own pork chop. And uh, there is a funny story about uh, how I tried to start with mule foots. That was going to be our, our breed as the mule foot. Hmm. And I could not find a breeder that would talk to me or return my phone call. It was, it was ridiculous. I called all over the country, and I couldn't find a single person to return my phone call and sell me breeding stock. Interesting. So I found a guy in Wisconsin and bought six gilts from him, three of which turned out to be infertile. So I don't know if it was just the the way that he had raised them or if he hadn't been selecting for anything. And there was a lot of infertility in there. And that I fed my girls good. And I thought that I was waiting to 300 pounds like for a commercial sow. I realized, man, a 300-pound red wattle is a little bit fattier. Yeah, yeah. And that they went, they went beyond and I couldn't get them back. That I raised them too quick. They got too fat, and now I can't I can't bring them back down to the right weight to get them bred. <clears throat> Another hard lesson learned. Right. Yeah. Don't, don't overfeed your breeding stock. That's why we feed twelve percent feed, and I feed once a day. All my breeding stock they all get fed once a day, and they get twelve percent protein. They've got to find the rest of it out there in the pasture. Hmm. That's interesting. Which is, which is an extra large pasture. We try and put like. Two, two to three sows per acre. Yeah. Oh wow. Is kind of the the maximum, but most of the time, like there's five acres in front of our house. There's six sows out there. But we, I wanted to move everyone out because they were all bred, and I had six litters of piglets running around in a five acre field. And I'm like, there's gonna be way too much chaos with any more pigs <laughs> than that out here. Where, where, where were we? No, no, that that was good. No, I, I, and and I, I agree with everything you said there. It, it is interesting to see the transition and between a the the um, more the the production breed stock and then moving over to the heritage. You know, there's I guess you could say there's pros and cons to both. But but what I saw with the just the turnaround when I was producing us a lighter pig. Because it's the same point. I was at at six to seven months. I was getting a much heavier hanging weight with the Hampshire Dirt Cross, and in that same time frame, I was getting a lighter hanging weight with the um, the uh, old or the uh, large black Tamworth Cross. But it was okay. I was getting good feedback from my clients saying this is much better quality pork. I, w- I got off on a tangent about how I didn't get to eat any of my pork, right. so I don't know. I don't know how. Ha- I don't know anything about butcher weights. Yeah. Okay. When, I got it, you. when yeah. it comes to raising a hog, I know nothing about the correct butcher weight for a red wattle because I haven't done it. Right. I can tell you the animals that I have butchered have most been in hanging weights of 400 to 500 pounds. Yeah. Because you're not, you're not just, you're, you're calling sows at that point, correct? That is all call sows. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's a big pig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that I overfeed them on the, the quality, you know, the, the protein mm-hmm. and they do forage an incredible amount. And this leads me to researching about forages about why clover has so much lysine and protein and you can get those bigger pigs. The lightest pig that we butchered was a 300 hanging weight. Mm. And she was a one-year-old gilt that didn't breed. And her pork chops, I don't know if I sent you any pictures. Uh-uh, no, no. But I, I post this picture of this pork chop all over Facebook when everyone is asking for a pig. Or, you know, all these different sites, people are looking for pig. Right. And and I only do it if someone's asking for a heritage breed of pig. Because then I know that they're interested in quality. And I post a picture of that pork chop. And then I start getting kind of a little bit of hate mail. <laughs> you know, that there's people start following and being like, Ryan's there with his pork chop again. Right. It is ideal for a heritage breed to go to 300 hanging weight so that your pork chops resemble a porterhouse steak. Right. And the eating experience is, you know, people spend money on eating experience. You know, we don't have a lot of restaurants around us, but the ones that, you know, we do, they've got really good food. You know, these, these people cook really well, but I ain't dropping a hundred bucks every weekend to go out to no dinner. I ain't going to pay that, but the average person might do that once a month or even worse that they're out there doing that every weekend. (laughs) They can afford, they can afford a premium on their pork. And if your freezer is filled with pork like that, you're going to eat a lot more pork. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't the producer, why wouldn't the heritage breeder, the pasture raised guy be out there trying to overachieve on the quality of his product, no matter what the cost so his product cannot be confused with anything in a freezer case. Does that? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, no. I, I, that makes sense, definitely. And 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 like you say, it come. It really comes back to your your customer base and understanding, uh, like you say, that eating experience customer base. And that's that's the education process I think that comes in. And we talk about this all the time on the podcast, where people are like. Hey, I'm getting into this, but I, I can't compete with um, our supermarket because they're selling pork chops at this. And we always discuss, well, you know, that's that's not your market. You're not trying to get the box store supermarket customer. You're trying to get somebody who appreciates the product, appreciates how it's raised, and appreciates you know something that tastes, looks, feels, everything. It just it just is superior product. So don't try to compete with those 99 cents a pound pork chops that you see in the supermarket. So I, I guess I'm going to give it away for free. I'm going to tell everyone the secret to, <laughs> to, to making this happen because I, you know, everyone's out there trying to sell their ideas. I, I'm not, I don't think I should name any names of these guys, but you know, there's a lot of guys out there trying to sell their, their image. Sure. Be like me. I'm, pasture guy this and i'm you know sustainable guy that regenerative agriculture those are all worthwhile endeavors 
but what they're selling is not something that is a profitable business model. The profitable mm. business model is what each person can do locally. And number one, you got to have the breed. You got to have the right breed that is going to set itself apart from your other products because you're not competing with them. You're going in the opposite direction as far as you can and make something that looks, when they see your pork chop, they're like, I've never had a pork chop like that. What What is people's impulse? They're going to buy it and try it. Right. You know, you get them hooked. They have it once and like, man, this is great. I don't care that it cost me $10 for a pork chop because they're going to go out on Friday night and dump a hundred bucks at the supper club. The next after breed is feed. You got to research the right feed so that your animal is building its frame and its muscle and its fat all together at the same time. Getting that fat marbled like that. I don't think it's rocket science. I think you just have to let your animal grow at the most comfortable pace it can as quickly as possible. And a low protein feed does that. You're not building excess muscle, but you have to have the right amount of the amino acids. You know, it's a, the feed is a tricky part. That is where everyone gets hung up. They go and buy the, the feed that comes in the store and it's not designed to raise a heritage pig. It's designed to raise a bulky muscly pig that is not very tasty. So don't buy that feed. You need to go and get corn that's grown locally, barley that's grown locally, stuff that has not had chemicals sprayed on it. It doesn't have to be organic, just that you can't have Roundup sprayed on your grains if you want your animals to grow as best as possible. You need breed, you need feed, and then you need to keep the environment as stress-free as possible. And I don't care which heritage pig you pick that meat will be better than any meat anyone's ever had no stress not a lot of animals in your in your area don't be mixing different age groups people always mixing different pigs together and everyone's losing an ear or an eye or some damn thing it's like <laughs> that is not helpful to your end product right <laughs> yeah hostile environment for certain yeah so keep your keep your age group separate. You know, grow them up as as one crew. They have to have forage. Your animals must have forage. If it's drought, if it's winter, I buy baleage, actual clover fields, cut, chopped, and wrapped in plastic. It smells like food when you open it up. If you open up a bale, you'll have pigs jumping through the fence after it. <laughs> right. No joke. Yeah. Just take a handful of something like that into a confinement area and throw it in there for a bunch of those pigs. They'll be losing ears and eyes over it. Animals must have that forage all the time if you want them to grow right. And then I don't, I don't know what it is about dirt. My brother used to feed me a lot of dirt, and I think I turned out pretty good. <laughs> And I've noticed that my pigs, if I don't move that farrowing area, the little babies put their nose in dirt immediately. Yeah. It's, like the, it's like the first thing that goes in their mouth before they even suckle on their mo- mother is they're, they're flopping around back there, putting their nose in the hay and the dirt. There's something about clean dirt that makes your animals uh, 
as it starts starts to rain here. I'm sitting in the car. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, fresh dirt. I, I I can't explain it. Yeah, well, that, man, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you might lose me because it it's about uh, storm here. Are we? You're off speakerphone now, but it, it might get loud. Oh. I moved to the car for better reception, but now it's going to storm like crazy. Oh, well, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, if we need to, if we need to cut it short, we definitely can, but uh, we'll, we'll keep going. I, sound quality's solid on this side. All right. So, okay. So, wow, you, there was a lot that you explained there and a lot to unpack, and I really appreciate um, your insight on some of those key elements you need to raise a quality product. Well, let me ask you something with that in the song, same lines of that. So when you started getting into pigs and raising these, you'd mentioned that you're kind of keeping the cash flow going, keep the business model going. So that's why you were selling your piglets uh, for breeding stock. And, and then some would be uh, uh, kind of called out for feeders. So is that just the genesis of that? You just ran with it and said, hey, I've got a model here. This is, there's, there's growth, there's demand, and, and we're just going to run with this and not try to finish any hogs. Did you come to a point where you said, I'm not going to finish anything out for people to eat. This is, this is going to be the core of our model right now. Well, it, I guess we, we didn't go through my, my whole childhood about growing up on a you know, 200-head dairy operation. You know, all the all the meat that I ever ate growing up was all old, tough cow cows. <laughs> you know, so so I, the mo- the biz- the profitable business model is you eat you eat what you can't sell for a premium. And for anyone else that wanted meat, you know, we're we're calling a sow. All right, there's going to be 300 pounds of meat off of this pig. So we would just kind of tell people, hey, you know, there's going to be 300 pounds of meat available. Well, we butchered a couple ourselves, and then it's like there's a butcher shop, you know, 10 minutes away, and they almost always have openings. There's butcher shops all over Wisconsin. I don't know if people don't have that where they are, but I've got five different little butcher shops within an hour drive of me. Yeah, wow. it's nice. So I was just like, hey, for... 250 bucks or 300 bucks, whatever they charge, they will kill it, gut it, hang it, cool it, cut it, burn it. And then I just frozen in my, in my coolers. And I'm like, man, that, I couldn't do all that in a long weekend for right. 250 bucks or 300 bucks. That's cheap. Just pay to have it done. So we, the call style meat ended up being fantastic. So we don't have a reason to raise other pigs because we're constantly calling. And I guess that works into raising breeding stock, that you're going to call a lot of sows, like 50%. Mm. I mean, it it is held pretty true that every year, half the sows I start the year with, they they don't make it to the end of the year. So what is your threshold there? You, it sounds like you, you definitely have a, a checklist or a process that you go through and say, these are in, these are out. Would you mind elaborating that? No, I can't. There are some things that if, if you're doing it right, it's a personal connection you have with the animals. 
because you spend, no one else could come there and see what you see. Hmm. That I can see the different lines of my sows in the herd, and I know exactly whose pig is whose pigs, and someone else come out to be like, <laughs> they're all red pigs to me. <laughs> so I know whose babies are, are doing what, and because I'm out there all the time, every day, it's just obvious, you know, she, she did not overachieve. <clears throat> and when you're doing a, a breeding program, you're looking for overachievers. And she has to be a, a smart pig. You know, she's, she has to know everyone's name. She's got to know my name. She's, you know, she's got to understand exactly what's going on at all times. She's got to be calm. Her babies are going to be calm. And by selecting for animals that work good in my system, it makes my system work better. It's not about productivity, you know, that how many pounds of meat can that sow produce or how big are her loins or all the other criteria that someone else would be selecting for. I am selecting for a whole animal that works best with me as an individual. Interesting. Interesting. So the like, so to, to I guess just to kind of summarize, you're saying that this this intimacy that you have with your pigs allows you to understand more of the holistic characteristics of each individual sow, and that allows you to make that choice and 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 separate who needs to be separated. Uh, yes, to summarize, but it's it's the it's what's required to separate a good pig from a great pig. Ah, very good. Because there's a lot there's a lot of good pigs out there. Everyone's got good pigs. And even average pigs are useful. I don't mind having an average pig around to have a litter for me, but I don't think I need her to have two litters for me. So I'm worried too much about having average pigs in my herd, just that unless I've got a shortage of animals or someone's looking for a very average animal, you know, then they don't get to stay around. And the ones that are around, I've got one of my six original pigs that was born November of 2015. Hmm. So she's about to be six years old and she is bred. Nope, she's not bred. She is to be weaned off of her 10th litter. Goodness. Wow. And she is a happy pig and she watches everything when i go out to feed and i take a bucket of feed which i i feed on plywood out in the pasture so i'm not automatic feeding these pigs i go out there once a day feed my pigs they all get they'll get a little bit of that interaction with me not like i'm stopping and petting all the pigs but they they bump into me they see me at the bucket you know it's a where automatic feeder they're not they don't have that connection that you bring them the food every day. Right. Absolutely. She will watch. Like this pig will just be laying down. All the pigs jump up at feeding time. She lays there and watches. I mean, she lets all the chaos happen. <laughs> and then and then like I'll come I'll come back and then she'll look at me and do this like thing with her head like, I'm sitting right here, Ryan. Bring me some food. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> after all I've done for you. <laughs> so she has me trained that after I'm done with all the other chores, I come and give her food by herself. Very good. 
<laughs> so, I mean, it's one of those things. When you're when you got a lot of pigs, you start to know differences. When yeah. you have just two pigs, it's really hard to know how good of a pig they are because there's no, you know, there's nothing else to compare it to. Yeah. 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 That's a good. Very, very good point. Yeah. It's tough to have a control in a study group when there's just two people involved in that situation. So, so I, I have to ask so with, with what you're managing here, I believe in your pre-screening, I at least think you said uh, that you're upwards of 30 some breeding. Um, let me look here. Yeah. 29 adult breeders, 26 sows, five boars currently. So what tools are you using to, to manage that? I mean, is that all in Ryan's head or is there a spreadsheet somewhere? Or is there a farm book in the back pocket? How, you, how are you managing that, all those genetic lines? Well, I've got the help of, you know, the, the registry. Registry keeps track of all the, the pedigree stuff. But we do have different lines for different generations in different pets. So all of Buckeye's, Buckeye was our third boar from Jim Meyer out in Ohio. All of Buckeye's line kept 20 gilts from last, it's been this time last year, it was last July, June, July, and August, I think, or June and July. But those 20 girls, there's only 12 left on the farm. Hmm. Hmm. So they all have their litters, which I have their litters all weaned out. I've got a huge pen of piglets where a number of breeders from all over the country all have kind of spoken for us. So we've got to go for a little tour day, lower 48, and deliver a bunch of breeding stuff. Wow. Yeah. And because of the selection process where you have these different lines, I can take someone, you know, something out of Buckeye's line and then go over and take something out of, you know, Lime's line or, you know, the Heliopsis was our, one of our original pigs and she was our fastest grower, but that also meant she was kind of the meanest pig. So her line, while it is very productive, is not as easy to work with. Right. You know, so there, we have all these different pens and it's like we, we refer them, refer to them as that's, you know, Lime's line or Heliopsis' line, you know, in that pen. Yeah. Good deal. Good deal. Man, that, there's thousands of questions that come into my head, but I'm, I'm not going to keep you all night. And in, in fact, I appreciate the time that you've spent uh, discussing this with you. So I, I want to kind of wrap up with a couple questions, if we could. Um, one is which, what do you see in the next five years? If, if you're sitting down and, and you're discussing kind of a five-year plan, where do you see your operation in five years from now? I think that I keep myself overbooked on just about everything that I do. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I would like to see in five years that I know will never happen. <laughs> but, but part of running a, a, a successful business is to have an overachiever mentality that your, your projections, you should always be projecting just a little bit beyond your reach so that when you get up in the morning, you're like, man, I got to get these pigs grown, you know, so that there's, it, it rained last night and I've got uh, two groups of 
they're all from the same generation, but they're a couple weeks different, and I want to get them all mixed together so that when they go off to the moment, everyone's kind of acting. So I've got these two that I mixed, and they weren't sitting by each other yet last night when the storm rolled through. So there I am last night after the storm rolled through trying to put some hay out in the middle of the field where 12 piglets decide that's where they're going to sleep for the night because they don't want to be by together pigs. I mean, yeah, right. there is there is definitely some commitment involved in in projecting, you know, where you're going in five years. I'd be happy with being successful doing right what I'm doing. Right? Very good. But there is there's a lot of ambition to improve the breed. You know, as I'm breeding, that hopefully I don't have to do anything extra other than do a good job of looking at my pigs and only selecting the best breeders so that I have a better, you know, better herd for myself and a better herd for anyone else that's getting breeding stock. I do have ambitions, on, you know, getting other people started in red wattles, you know, being, being part of the red wattle community. I, I wouldn't mind being you know, more involved in that in five years. And I wouldn't mind adding a couple other heritage breeds to the farm, especially some of the, the more rare ones, mm -hmm. so that I can have a very unbiased um, uh, opinion or, you know, when I can tell people what is the right pig for their operation, that I have a little bit better idea of how each breed functions on different, different people's properties. And I could even recommend, hey, this guy's doing exactly what you want to do. You should be buying pigs from him because that's how people should start out. You should go and find someone that is doing exactly what they're doing. And I wouldn't mind trying to help other people network you know, in the next five years. Hmm. Good deal. So. Yeah. Well, man, that's great. And I, I, I like everything you said there. I definitely appreciate the, overachiever, uh, ambitious uh, model there to keep you on your toes, to keep you from kind of settling into something that's mundane and just uh, you know, the same thing every day. Um, that's, that's good, solid advice there. All right, so, so one more question for you, Ryan, and I like to, I like to close out our podcast uh, each episode when I have somebody on to talk about this and answer this question in summary. So in your opinion, in your experience, what is your best experience or favorite part about raising pigs on pasture? Well, I think that most people agree that bacon is the most rewarding <laughs> part of, of raising pigs on pasture. But I can't speak for other people. I would say bacon right. is the most. I mean, there, there's all the, the peripheries that I've got this you know, regenerative cycle, you know, there's so much stuff that we didn't even get into about the culture of farm to fork and, you know, just where do pasture pig farmers even fit into the whole new way of looking at, you know, the slow food. I don't know how many different names there are for the, for what people are doing out there. Right. But, you know, they reward you know, it's there's there's so many different parts of being a pasture raised farmer of any kind because you're 
you're not dealing with a tractor, you're not dealing with all this, this other craziness. It's such a, you don't make as much money, but you don't spend as much money. So the great thing about raising pasture pigs is once you have a little bit of infrastructure built, you're kind of set. You don't have an overhead where these, you know, big guys pay thousands of dollars per sow just to build their, their damn building. And then you've got to have the lights running and the heat on and the water on. Incredible amount of overhead to running a big operation where pasture raised, I bet you for a thousand dollars worth of fence, you know, I don't know what it takes to fence in a couple acres. I could figure it out, but it's not that much to put up a couple acres of fencing. You know, go get yourself a couple pieces of plywood. They're not as expensive as they once were. <laughs> you know, and you can be raising hogs for for relatively low investment if you're talking a business. You know, most people think of starting a business needing tens of thousands of dollars. I think that you could be profitable and pasture raising pigs for $10,000. And that would be, even if you had to go and buy a couple acres of land, I don't know, land's cheap in Wisconsin, you can get it for a couple thousand dollars an acre if you're buying wooded stuff. But I think for $10,000, a guy could have an acre of pigs on pasture, including buying the acre of pigs. Or the acre and the pigs. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I, I love the model. I agree with you 100%. I think everything about that, the more agile and more mobile you can be, and the more that just helps you with overhead expenses, op- opens a door for leased land. There's just there's so much that you could do with that. It's good stuff. Well, Ryan, if uh, people want to learn more about your farm, where can they find you online? Well, then, you know, until Facebook permanently blocks me i'm on i'm on facebook you know just ryan balaje or there's a facebook page for our farm which is epic nature llc perennial gardens and sustainable agriculture very good i'll provide that information below in our show notes people so you can you can find that and and uh, provide those links you can check him out on social media well, Ryan, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to come on the podcast. Uh, I see, you know, looking at my timer here, we're we're an hour in, and and I could easily ask you another hour's worth of questions, but maybe we'll table that, and maybe we'll invite you back on later if you're willing to come back uh, later in the year and and, sh- and share some more of your wisdom with us. <laughs> wisdom, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, if it wasn't so loud at a bar, we could do this down there. <laughs> I'll talk pigs all night. Right, right. I hear you. Well, man, I really appreciate you coming on, and I, I thank you for your input, and I uh, hope you're not uh, not stuck in the car in the rain uh, too long. No, it's coming down. I don't know if you can hear it. No, no, it actually sounds really, really good. I, I don't hear any, any uh, background noise at all. So you're on speakerphone now. I don't know if you can hear it now. Yep, yep. I can definitely hear it now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, I pray you have a good evening. And and again, appreciate you coming on. All right. Thanks. All right. Take care. Well, I really appreciate Ryan coming on the podcast. We've actually had a a couple other calls since then. He and I have just talked uh, off off the record, I guess would be the way to put it. And, And really like what he's got going on up there in Wisconsin. There's several things that I think 
again, that would benefit uh, our podcast and our efforts. So we may have him back on to discuss some specifics and share some details with us. Um, Along the same lines of the podcast, this is where I need some other feedback from you all. I don't know if you've noticed, hopefully, uh, in this episode, the audio quality has improved. Now, um, I believe there's still room for improvement, and that may have to be a software upgrade, but uh, at least we've we've stopped using landline. Uh, I've just had to bite the bullet, and I travel out, actually travel out about 45 minutes uh, to a client's office to be able to um, utilize their high-speed internet and those type of things to um, to use these services to to make our podcast uh, quality sound better. So um, I'm hoping it does sound better. There's still uh, there's still some volume things I'm trying to work out. When I edit this here on my computer, it seems like everything's balanced well. But then when I get in my truck and I listen to the podcast to see how you guys hear it, then I'm kind of like, Ugh, that, uh, that sounds a little quiet at some spots. So give me feedback if you would. Uh, again, Troy at RedToolHouse.com would be very helpful to have some feedback to say, hey, yeah, your your intros sound fine or they're too hot or your 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 guests are, are too fuzzy or they're not loud enough, whatever the case may be. Uh, but maybe use this one as a catalyst because this is the format I'm going to use for a while, uh, again, until we can get some high speed on the farm. All right. Well, enough of that. If you guys have any input, any suggestions, I've got a couple more interviews lined up, but I need about four or five more to get me through uh, the holiday season because I know not everybody wants to come on during the peak of Thanksgiving and Christmas. So I'd like to have some of those in the bank. So give me a shout if you would like to come on the podcast. I really like it when you guys use the pre-screening form on the website. And that's redtoolhouse.com forward slash podcast, Pastor Pig Podcast. And that form just allows me to have some of those details in place, know what time zone you're in, know what time of day that you can do a call, that type of stuff, and really helps me schedule. So if you could use that form, let me know very basic information, but that helps me get my proverbial ducks in a row, or pigs in a row, I guess you'd say. Well, I appreciate everyone listening, and as always, I pray you have a great week out in the pasture. All right, take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.